Welcome to Writer's Radio. I'm Carol Harmon, your host for this episode, The Singer and the Song, featuring work by Ingrid Rose. Writer's Radio launched in November 2020. On our first anniversary, we inaugurated an annual tradition of including work by our three producers, Ingrid Rose, Gary Sill, and myself, in our programming so that we reveal ourselves as well as the writers we have represented. Embracing Her is a remembering of Ingrid's mother, Irene Rena Rose. Ingrid was born into a non-practicing Jewish family. Like her father, she was an atheist and involved in left-wing politics until she began to follow a spiritual path. The program will close with Ingrid's ekphrastic poem, Song of Songs. It was written to accompany the paintings of 50 Jewish artists at the Sidney and Gertrude Zack Gallery in Vancouver in 2018. This exhibition celebrated Israel's 70 years of song and dance. With no further ado, I give you our wonderful producer, co-host and writer Ingrid Rose. Embracing Her Ma and I had a vexed relationship. Not unusual between mother and daughter. We were born at very different times in history. She in 1920, two years after the end of World War I, youngest of a family of seven. Born in the East End of London to Orthodox Jewish parents hailing from Poland. To talk English without a foreign accent was achieved by my grandmother and passed on to most of her children. Of all of them, Ma was gifted with a particularly lovely deep timbre voice, and spoke the Queen's English better than the Queen. My twin brother and I were born in 1950, five years after World War II was over, to my now well-off parents in the wealthy neighbourhood of St John's Wood. If you do the maths, you can see that was a lifetime ago. For just over a quarter of a century, I've been living in Vancouver, B.C., Canada. My children are middle-aged and lead their own lives in different parts of this vast country. It's early morning as I sit here at Ma's antique desk, my laptop on its gold-embossed red leather, where her manual typewriter used to sit. Unlike me, she touch-typed. I've kept some of the pale blue airmail letters she sent to places where I'd lived after leaving England for good. The last letter, not typed, 
arrived creased at our house in the hamlet of Villan, southeastern France. Seeing the scrawl of a now trembling hand made me catch my breath. By then she was too sick to visit us in the country she'd loved. She died October the 12th, 1991, at 71, my age now, in her sleep. Her lung cancer had metastasized. Earlier that last day, the wheelchair had been delivered, signaling her age and frailty. She'd not have been seen dead in it, dragging her body into the bathroom along with her long-corded phone, out of earshot from Dad, already catatonic with sorrow. she jested with her best friend, Sis. Irene Rinna Rose likely began smoking as early as 14, if her stories were to be believed. A sexy, red-headed girl stuffing her beret in her satchel as soon as she'd left the schoolyard, lips glossy crimson, glint in hazel eyes, acutely aware of her attractiveness to men and their attraction to her. In one photo, she stands in a Red Cross uniform, accompanied by an officer, also in uniform. Apparently, Dad had won her hand in competition against two South African doctors. Grandma always insisted that the birth order of her children was first the four boys, then the three girls. In truth, one of Ma's sisters was older than the youngest brother. But to the Buckmans, white lies were often permissible. As in, Ma was ten years younger than Dad. Not true, my brother told me. She'd inked the zero of 1920 to a six in her blue British passport and got away with it. Dieu est mon droit, an onisois qui mal pense, embossed in gold, notwithstanding. As I sit at her desk, I study the chunky amethyst ring slipping to rest against my little finger, her present to me in my early twenties. Violet quartz crystals set on a silver cube designed by one of the boys, as she insists called them. Four younger gay men, along with these two older women, formed a charmed circle. They talked of everything under the sun, and I, an adolescent at the time, jealous of the attention she gave them. Dad more tolerant, but until the end, as open-minded as he tried to be, he wasn't at ease with poofters. What he'd have thought of my now having a woman partner, I don't know. I do know, in spite of his squeamishness, he'd have liked her, her intelligence, shyness, honesty. Ma might have been secretly titillated, if she and Sis had only been born a generation later. Often, when I was young, Ma's gaiety reserved for her adult world irked. Not that she hadn't earned the right to be happy. Dad diagnosed early on in their marriage as suffering severe anxiety, later identified as manic depression, demanded much of her. Money being a major cause for concern, when in a manic phase, he'd give away thousands of pounds to the Communist Party and the many political causes that kept him awake at nights. 
She cared about social and individual injustices too, but luxury suited her. As Dad's schizophrenic brother, one-time trade union lawyer, had sneered in his ear, Maury, we all know Rinna's bourgeois. When a takeover of the knitwear company where she was sales director virtually forced her into early retirement, Sis got her to go to art school. She never looked back. Turning the guest room into a studio, her life revolved around art making and new arty friends. Eventually, she became the beloved president of their student union. That she became actively political astonished me. Even I was my father's daughter and a Trotskyist in response to his Stalinism. I have two of her nude sculptures in my apartment, a few of many watercolours in a file in my cupboard, and videotapes I still haven't got round to converting to digital. My children were particularly fond of the animated video, the Christmas pudding she'd made with a fellow artist. Three tubby puddings, mother, father and baby, seen in one frame, pushing baby on a swing, and in the next, same baby pud up to its holly and boiling water. I recall my daughter, four at the time, plead, again, again, can we see it again? Ma really was a lot of fun, and funny too. When we were very young, she'd get down on the carpet in the long corridor of our flat, with us kneeling between book-lined walls to look at pictures and diagrams in a book, from head to toe. She'd point at something obvious like a breast and say, What's that called? Or she'd laugh as she tapped her perfect crimson nail on the man's penis. And that. If Dad happened to be passing by at that precise moment and heard her say, Prick, he'd crunch his jaw into his neck. Rin! Although he shook his head, a slight smile dissolved his attempt at severity. His smart, funny wife. Love of his life. When she was dying, all she wanted was their bedroom to herself. But his distress so palpable, even though she was the one losing her life, she didn't have the heart to make him sleep in the guest room. When we were young and growing, we forgave her everything. Her and Dad going away with friends, leaving us behind with Nanny. At the office all day, too tired in the evening to play with us, ask about school, hear our sorrows. She was beautiful, colourful, daring, sexy. Best of all, improper. Fuck littered her conversation. Materialist that she was, stubborn, loyal and loving, a terror when riled and you wisely didn't fuck with her. But as an adolescent, even long after, I couldn't resist pushing against her terrible strength of purpose. What she wanted me and my brother to become had little to do with who we were and wanted to be. Young, I was mesmerized by her, my brother enthralled. We watched as she sat in her silk slip and nylons at her dressing table, dipped manicured fingers into drawers filled with 
a palette of cosmetics. Lipsticks with names like Stormy Pink, Cherries in the Snow, Hot Coral, swiveled until tip emerged, smoothed on bottom lip, then top, smacked together in creamy promise. Rouge, softened by silky powder, eyeliner, eyelids shadowed blue, thick mascara on lashes. Finally, her curls, held hostage by silver clips and rollers, let loose, back home to Beehive. She forced me to go through curler torture until I rebelled. A tomboy daughter, not what she'd intended. I hated being kissed by lipstick lips. Or she'd cover the broken blood vessel on my nose with skin-coloured eraser. So much prettier, Ingrid. I'd shrivel in shame that in my natural state I must have looked unsightly. Morning preparation for the office, made up and groomed, a pale turquoise, fine wool dress with matching jacket, stockinged feet in black patent high heels. Even more magical, evening preparation for going out to theatre or ballet, restaurant or dinner at friends. Diamond earrings dangling from earlobes. Necklace fastened by Dad, or sometimes if lucky by me, to glitter on naked collarbones above the black Parisian décolleté's top. The top I've kept and occasionally wear as undervest, since a spiritual teacher suggested I use a piece of her clothing, as if she were holding me, as much as feeling myself embracing her. One of the most terrible things she ever said to me as a teen was, Ingrid, I love you, but I don't like you. I wasn't obedient. I didn't want to be like her. At 28, when I told her I was pregnant, the father and I unmarried, she said, I feel sick. She couldn't accept a bastard grandchild. Neither dad nor sis could fathom her abrupt retreat into conventionality. Almost the whole nine months of my pregnancy, she sent me newspaper cuttings about the dire consequences of having a bastard child. This was in 1979. She turned out to be a fantastic grandmother to both my kids. I can't remember the terrible things I said to her, but today... I put on the black décolleté top under my sweater again. Before she married, she'd taken a cordon bleu cooking course, but as a working woman, when she came home at night, it was the cook who prepared the evening meal. A good cook. A lovely woman who often welcomed my brother and me in the kitchen, and who named her only daughter Ingrid, out of her love for my mother. Love's underbelly was revealed in her other household relationship with my brothers and my full-time caretaker, Nanny. I'd never understood why Ma had accepted living 17 years under the same roof with a woman she heartily disliked. Clearly, it fulfilled practical as well as social requirements. Someone needed to be home for us at the end of the day. That someone had to bring us up well-mannered and obedient. That someone happened to be Irish, Presbyterian, prim and proper, trained as a nanny to boot. 
I held it against her and Ma for a long time. I always wondered if it mattered to Nanny we were atheists and Dad was a communist, or if she even knew. She came with good references and wore a uniform. In my last year at school, Nanny called me into her tiny bedroom in tears. Too overwrought to say anything, she prodded her elbow into my side, pointed at the bedside cupboard, door flung open, several bottles of lotion and hand cream toppled on the carpet. When she could speak, she said, I know who's responsible for this. She wouldn't say, but of course we both knew. I was shocked Ma's contained fury after all that time had erupted so meanly. Ma, a redhead, had a temper. Nanny was iron grey and bit her thin lips. Of differing mineral and chemical constitutions, like mixing two drain cleaners, result, explosion. Sometime after Ma died, an old school friend wrote that she'd found my mother exotic. Exotique. From outside. Unusual. Strange. The mother I'm remembering. My brother and I never saw her dead. That morning, Dad phoned. His voice barely audible. I was in France cleaning Lavigne, the big house at the centre of the intentional community we lived in. My brother and his family asleep 5,000 miles away in Vancouver. We both went to London for the cremation, the second time in our adult lives, bedded down in her guest room studio, flat, hollow without her. At the cremation, I wore her navy blue wool dress. It fitted like a glove. She would have been astonished to see the new low-heeled black patent shoes I bought with my cousin the day before. The cousin who'd said, Your mum was fucking fantastic. I remember slowly walking from the pew up to the raised days in the gold as green crematorium chapel to read a poem I'd written for her. You called up love as rainmakers call upon the rain, magically enliven a sleeping, dried-out earth. Dad and my brother couldn't speak a word. When my brother and I flew back to our respective countries, we each had in our luggage a sealed bag of her ashes. I don't know what he did with his. Dad wouldn't take any what would I do with them? The bulk of them lodged at the crematorium, which only had two sisters and sis visited again. I planted a rose bush over a handful near the front door of our rented house, the rest at Lavigne, close to the conference room my partner had designed on sacred geometric principles. Some of her ashes still remain in France the country she loved so dearly, but not her joie de vivre.
Song of Songs A violin for all your songs. Imagine yourselves a beautiful world, less sad than this one. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. We are walking here with the sun in our pockets. Things I can't say out of love, things I can't speak out of fear, an empty violin case. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. A woman's foot outspread strikes the ground. Maybe she'll dance a song of peace. Today is the day for the silk of the earth. Now is the planting season. Hear, O Israel, let us sing. Let us rejoice. Jacob's head lay on a rock and he dreamed. Hear, O Israel, let us sing. Let us rejoice. A nation born like a babe mewling, skin copper, skin peach ripe. Seventy years on, a different sight. At the top of the ladder is God. Angels stream up and down. A rainbow arcs the sky. It is our promise. Then, as now, its praises let us sing and dance, mix blessings, whisper and rejoice, daven and wail. All night Jacob wrestled with the angel. In the morning he's newly baptized, Yisrael. It depends on your perspective. You, here, near, middle, or far. The sun quavers in the desert. Who am I, who am I, to cast judgment? Let's rejoice and be happy. Hava Nagila. Let's sing. Hava Naranana. Today a song of peace. Urahim Belev Samea, awake my brothers with a happy heart. In an empty violin case, Dad's friend Joe Goldman took his sandwiches to school. Let us sing in a strong and resonant voice. Will our children have paradise? Will we fail them here as elsewhere? My mother's father was a cantor, but we only went to shul for Grandma's sake, on Yom Kippur. We'll look the other way again. Immigrants, like we once were, climbing up from the valley, will descend to us from the hills. We'll receive them as our beloveds, welcome them with open arms. You, you are a slice of the world. 
see what is heard, hear what is seen. If music be the word, the word, play on. You're very dark and lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Light a candle, light a candle with me. Me and you will change the world. We'll go out to them again, singing like a thousand birds. We're walking here with the sun in our pockets, attentive to your voice, Mother Earth. Wherever and always, you're the one we travel. Music has made the desert bloom. In the vineyards of Engedi, my beloved, a cluster of henna blossoms, persimmons, loquats, pomegranates, prickly pears, this slice of life. No better or worse. No better or worse, this slice of life. Maybe she'll dance a song of peace. Today is the day for the silk of the earth. You have been listening to Ingrid Rose, co-host and co-producer of Writers Radio, remembering her mother in her essay, Embracing Her, and reading her poem, Song of Songs. In the near future, we will also be presenting work by Gary Sill, our musical virtuoso, and something of mine as well. Don't forget... All our programs become podcasts on the Writer's Radio website after they have been broadcast. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Writer's Radio, a non-commercial collaborative project which presents talented writers reading their own work. These stories, essays and conversations revisit the long tradition of oral storytelling that connects us to the inspiration behind the words. Be sure to check the website, writersradio.ca, to subscribe to our free notifications list. It's also a way of letting the writers know you are there and appreciating their creative work. Writers Radio broadcasts from Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast in Canada. Traditional tribal land of the Shishel Nation of the Coast Salish peoples. We express our gratitude for their wisdom teachings and land stewardship.